We have made this month of September all about family. Yeah, we've, uh, these last couple of weeks, we've seen some, some beautiful baby dedications, and, and, and we've been talking about family discipleship, and that's what we're going to continue to dig into today. We have called this series Master Builders uh, from 1 Corinthians 3.10, talking about that we want to be wise master builders, skillful master builders when it comes to raising up the next generation. So our kids, our grandkids, our nieces and nephews, all those that we have the opportunity to pour into. And we know that on our own, we don't have that skill. That's why we need lots and lots of grace. We need the grace of God in our lives. And so I pray that this series has been beneficial to your family. I pray that you've already seen some new things happening in your home and doing some different things with, with your keiki. And, and we've been building Legos because we're master builders. And so we've been building Legos, and we're going to do that again today. We're going to build some Legos at the end. And so we've already addressed bringing the Word of God to life in our families. We've addressed, Lannis did a phenomenal job last Sunday talking about knowing and loving God. And how we can model loving God for our children and our families. And so today is, is part three. And, and this one might be a little challenging. And, and I'm excited to share this. But even I've got to like calm myself down. Because I don't want to overwhelm you and, and come too strong. But today part three is called Pledging Allegiance to Jesus. Right, pledging allegiance to Jesus. And so if you've got your notes, you can uh, find the notes, obviously, in your bulletins here in person. Uh, they're attached to this video on our website. They're attached to this audio podcast, or you can also find them in our church app. Here's our big picture point today in our notes. It's as master builders of our families, we have the opportunity to model for the next generation that Jesus and his church are the top priorities in our lives. That we can model for the next generation that Jesus and his church are the top priorities in our lives. And so our theme today is allegiance. We're going to be talking about this idea of allegiance. And so, of course, uh, as any good preacher would do, I went to the dictionary and looked up allegiance. And so let's start with this. What does it mean? Allegiance is the loyalty of a citizen to his or her government or of a subject to his or her sovereign. And we know that Jesus is our sovereign king, yeah? And we are his subjects. It is loyalty or devotion to some person, group, cause, etc. Right? And so we talk about allegiance and pledging allegiance. Of course, here in America, we think of the Pledge of Allegiance, which, interesting facts, I did not know this until I did my research this week, that the state of Hawaii is one of the only states in the country that does not require the kids to say the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning of every school day. So it's optional. So maybe some schools do it, maybe some schools don't. But uh, most of the states in the country, it's, it's actually uh, required uh, that schools do it. So what is the Pledge of Allegiance all about? Well, uh, way back in 1885... As the country was putting itself back together after the Civil War, there was a, a Union Army officer who wrote a book about how to reinstill patriotism into children. And his whole theory was that we would use the public schools to instill patriotism in children. And the Pledge of Allegiance was like his central uh, uh, tool of his theory. 
And so he wrote this book. The book caught on, and he wrote a Pledge of Allegiance. It's not the one we share today. Listen to the Pledge of Allegiance that Captain George Thatcher Bolch wrote back in 1885. It was this. We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, one flag. That was it. That was the original Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, the current form that we know today was actually written seven years later in 1892, and I don't know why it became more popular and, and kind of took over, but, uh, but then it was in the early 1900s that, uh, that they began to actually pass laws uh, to declare that, that kids had to recite it in school. Uh, and then in 1954, uh, they added under God into the pledge, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible. Under God wasn't in there in 1892. It wasn't until 1954 that they added under God. Why did they add it? Well, what was happening in 1954? The Red Scare, communism, the Cold War. And so the United States Congress decided that the way that we as the United States could separate ourselves from those atheistic communists was to recognize that our nation believed in God. And so they added under God to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. Now, here's the interesting thing. I, I, uh, I read this in a, in a blog post, and it really got me thinking. All right, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not say the Pledge of Allegiance. And if you know anything about the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's a cult. All right, we love them. We, you know, we, we, we would desire for them to know the truth. But the reality is they've been deceived by a false gospel. And, and, and they believe things that are not biblical. But they refuse to pledge allegiance. Like they, they take a real strong stand against anything that could be idolatry, right? So they don't celebrate birthdays. They don't celebrate holidays. They don't recognize any nation or any flag or anything like that. And they even went to the Supreme Court uh, to, to, uh, to establish the fact that their kids had a right to, to not say it. And anyway, I read this blog post about it. And the guy in the blog post was actually positing the idea that maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses actually have it right. That maybe we should only be pledging allegiance to one kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, I'll just throw that out there like a grenade and let you guys process that yourselves. But, uh, but let's dig into this idea of allegiance. And first off, I want to talk about how biblical this is. Even though if you read your Bible, you will not find the word allegiance in there. And you say, okay, well then how is allegiance such a biblical concept? Well, you've got to understand that when the writers of the New Testament were writing about Jesus, they were writing in the common Greek, right? And the words that they were using in the common Greek were not religious words. They were words for everyday use. Now they've been translated into English, and we consider those English words to be religious words. But the original words were not religious words. So, for example, ecclesia, which we now translate to the church. Ecclesia was not a religious word, right? The word that we now translate into gospel was not a religious word. Right? These were not religious words. And so why am I saying all that? Because to fully understand the Bible, 
we have to understand that it was written in a certain time in a certain context. And so to understand the meaning of that time and that context is going to give us a deeper meaning of the Bible. And so I want to look at two words that we assume today are religious words, and there may be two of the most important words when it comes to us receiving the gospel, and I want to dig into the context of them. And those two words are grace and faith. Because again, Ephesians chapter 2, you have been saved by grace through faith. Right there, one simple phrase, two of the most important words to the gospel, grace and faith. But again, in the Greek, those two words were not religious words. They had a normal everyday context in which they were written back in the time of the Roman Empire. So let's start with the word grace. And in the blanks in your notes there, I want you to write in reciprocal. I want to talk about allegiance in the context of reciprocal grace. Reciprocal means it goes both ways, right? And why is that significant? Because nowadays when we think of the word grace, we only think of it going one way. God gives us gifts. God is good to me. That's grace, right? God, God just gives and gives to me, and, and I receive his grace. We, we have this one-way view of grace. But in the Roman Empire, when you talked about grace, they had this idea of reciprocal grace. Why is that? Because they were what is known as a patron-client state. What does that mean? That means that they were patrons. The patrons were the, the, the people with money and power and influence, right? So this would obviously go all the way up to Caesar. Caesar was a patron. But then the Roman governors, the Roman prefects would have been patrons. The, the Roman centurions, the, the other military leaders, the patrons were the people with the money and the influence and the power. The clients were everybody else, all the regular citizens, and in this culture, the patrons gave gifts to the clients, and they did nice things for them, and they were good to them, and they provided protection for them, and they provided infrastructure and, and, and all of these things. The client, in return, gave grace back to the patrons. What was the grace that they gave back to the patron? Allegiance. That they declared their allegiance to the patron and that was reciprocal grace. So when we read the word grace in the Bible, and in our American minds, we just think of one-way grace. God is just good to me. You've got to recognize that when this was written to people in the Roman Empire, when they read the word grace, they thought, the patron gives me good gifts, and in return, I give allegiance to the patron. That's reciprocal grace. What about the word faith? The word faith in the Greek was pistis or pistueo, right? These were the words that mean faith. I want you to listen to this author, Matthew Bates, who, who wrote about this concept. Now, we know that uh, the word pistis or pistueo had several meanings. It could mean faith, belief, trust, or guess what? Allegiance. So here's what the author wrote. He said, Pistis, as loyalty or allegiance to military commanders and kings and emperors, was so common that it attested across a wider range of sources than any other category. 
So what is the author saying here? He's saying that of all of those meanings of pistis, you know, faith, belief, trust, allegiance, that allegiance was the most commonly used meaning. And it was allegiance to military leaders or emperors or kings. He goes on to say this loyalty was reinforced by a military oath of allegiance. This pistis was not described as a one-time decision. Rather, its duration is consistently stressed. Allegiance that was genuine endured over the course of a full campaign or military career. Right, So this idea, the most commonly used way that this word was, was interpreted in that context was allegiance to a king or an emperor or to a military leader. And that allegiance was lasting. Right, It wasn't a short-term allegiance. It was a lasting allegiance. So does that mean the Bible is misinterpreting this word as faith? No, it's not misinterpreting it. It's just that we need to see it from the proper context. And so here's what we've done, again, in American culture. We've come up with this idea that Jesus is our personal Savior, right? We've declared that. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. You're right? That's nowhere in the Bible. That, that is not a biblical concept that Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior. The biblical concept is that Jesus is the King of the universe, and that Jesus died as a propitiation, as a, as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins so that we could be brought into his kingdom. Well, why is that significant? Because if Jesus is a personal savior, then this word pistis, faith, refers to an intellectual exercise. I have decided in my brain that I believe in Jesus. I have decided in my brain that, that Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is a king, then this word pistis is referring to a lifetime of allegiance. It's referring to a lifetime of allegiance. And so if the biblical concept is that Jesus is a king, then faith is referring to allegiance. All right, are you guys with me? So now when we read that simple phrase, for you have been saved by grace through faith, we now have a whole different context of what that means. It means that our patron, Jesus, has given us good gifts. And in return, we are pledging complete allegiance to him. An enduring allegiance. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's dig into our core scripture now and, 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 uh, and, and see what the word is going to reveal to us today about pledging allegiance to Jesus. We're going to go to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 25 to 35. It says this, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless for either the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's talk about what's happening here. Jesus through the course of his ministry, is gaining more and more popularity, right? He's doing miracles. He's casting out demons. People are getting healed. The dead are coming back to life again. All of these things are taking place. He's teaching with an authority that these Jews have never heard before, an authority they've never heard from the scribes or the Pharisees. And so word is spreading and crowds are gathering. And so here in Luke chapter 14, the very first thing we read in verse 25 is that large crowds were coming along with him. Coming along with him. That means that they weren't just coming to one show. They were following him from town to town. They were coming, going along with him. So Jesus has these large crowds now that are following him. And can we talk about human nature, right? It doesn't matter whether it's church or music or pop culture or academics or whatever it is, that if you get a large crowd following you, our human nature is, what can I do to keep this crowd, right? What can I do to make sure that I keep this big crowd or even better yet, how can I make this crowd even bigger? Jesus in his divine nature, did the exact opposite. He turned to the large crowd and thought to himself, how can I make this crowd smaller? Because Jesus was not interested in a popularity contest. Jesus was looking for something deeper, and there was something more important than just simply the number of people that were going along with him. And why was that important? We're going to get to that at the end of the message today. So he turns to this large crowd and in his divine nature decides a large crowd is not what I'm after. That is not what is good for the kingdom of God. What is good for the kingdom of God is that people understand the true cost of discipleship and what God is really looking for in followers of Christ. And if I can give them that, even though it's probably going to cause at least half this crowd, maybe 75% of this crowd to leave, that's okay. It's more important that people have a true understanding of discipleship, that people have a true understanding of what it would mean to pledge allegiance to Jesus. And so he shares three things. So we're going to call them today the three conditions of discipleship. Three things. First was verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I find it kind of funny that in a family discipleship series, we're teaching a scripture verse that says to hate your family. Okay, so... But let's talk about what Jesus really meant here. He did not mean that he wanted you to hate your family. He did not mean that he wanted you to even hate your own life. What he's using here is a, a Hebrew methodology using an extreme to illustrate a point. And the point is this, is that we should love everyone less than we love Jesus. We should love everyone less than we love Jesus. And you can find this love-hate dichotomy 
all through the Bible, all through Hebrew teachings, right? You can talk about Jesus, even in another teaching, said no one can serve two masters, for he will love the one and hate the other. Right, way back in the book of Genesis, when we read about Jacob having married both Leah and Rachel, in, in Genesis 29 and verse 30, it says that he loved Leah less than he loved Rachel. Right? And then in verse 31, the very next verse, it says, because Leah was hated, God did this for her. Right? So it's that same idea. It's not that he truly hated her. It's that he loved her less than he loved Rachel. That his love for her did not compare to his love for Rachel. And so what Jesus, is he's not telling us that we need to hate everybody, including ourselves. What he is saying is that our love for him should be so much greater than our love for everybody else, right? And this is interesting because other places in the Bible, it talks about what did Jesus say were the two greatest commandments? Lannis taught us this last Sunday. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we're supposed to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. Ephesians chapter 5, it was this morning's rooted Bible reading. Husbands, love your wives as you love your own body. Right? So we're supposed to love our neighbors the same way we love ourselves. We're supposed to love our spouses the same way we love ourselves. But we're supposed to love Jesus unlike we love anybody or anything else. It's a different level of love. Your devotion to Jesus trumps your devotion to anyone else, even including your own life. John taught it like this in, in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. John said, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Right? And so John is making it clear here that the key is not the love, it's the direction and the devotion of the love. Are you going to devote your love to God or are you going to devote your love to the world? But you cannot choose both. And of course, when he's referring to the world, he's not referring to that we cannot love the people of the world. He's referring to the broken sinful patterns and philosophies and ways of life of the world. Theologian Daniel Aiken said it like this, Our allegiance must not be divided. Our affection must be focused and specific. The stakes are high because the Father's kingdom is at war with the kingdom of this world. The two will never coexist peacefully. For all of those coexist bumper stickers that you've seen in your lifetime. He concludes by saying this, To pledge allegiance to one side is to declare opposition to the other. So first and foremost, to be a disciple of Jesus, we must love everyone and everyone else in this world less than we love Jesus. Our love for him has to be so great that everything else in comparison would look like hate. That's what Jesus was teaching. And he says, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to make your devotion to me so complete, he says, you cannot be my disciple. Number two, three conditions of discipleship. Carry your cross and follow Jesus. Right? Verse 27. 
He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to carry your cross? Of course, we read this in the context after Jesus went to the cross. And so we see the cross as a source of victory and a source of salvation. And, and, and we rejoice in the cross. But the people hearing Jesus say this, they didn't have that concept of the cross. The only thing the cross represented was death and shame and suffering. And so what was Jesus referring to when he told people to carry their cross? Death and shame and suffering. That's what he was referring to. So to carry our cross means we're making a commitment unto death. And we're going to follow Jesus till the day we die. We're going to follow Jesus even if following Jesus leads us to our death. And carrying your cross means that we're going to embrace the concepts of suffering and sacrifice. That in this life, we will suffer and we will sacrifice for Jesus. It's not all victory and breakthrough and us getting everything we want. There's suffering and there's sacrifice and there's death along the way. He says, you've got to be willing to carry your cross. He actually expanded on this earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, and Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus added on that not only do I expect you to carry your cross, I expect you to carry it daily. This is an everyday decision. This is not, oh, one time 30 years ago I made a decision to follow Jesus. No, it's have you made a decision today to carry your cross, to embrace suffering and sacrifice and death, to be a follower of Jesus. And the verb form of follow me implies a continuous following of me. And so in your notes there, it's daily and it's continuous. We're going to carry our cross daily, and we're going to follow Jesus continuously. What does this mean to follow Jesus? It means to live the way he told us to live, to follow the model that he set for us, to live by his word. And, and, and as I was preparing this week, God just kind of gave me this, this, this idea of the difference between an add-on versus a reprogramming. Right, we're, we're familiar with the concept of an add-on, right? And um, it doesn't matter where you go. You know, you can go get your nails done, and there's add-ons, right? You know, you want a painting on that? Add-on, right? You want, you want a clear coat? Add-on. You want, it's an add-on. You know, if you're buying tickets to a, a resort or a theme park, as you're buying your tickets, they offer you all the add-ons. Do you want a drink package with that? Do you want the food package with that? Do you want a special encounter with the dolphins with that? Right? There, there's, there's all of these add-ons. And here's the thing. When you add something on to your tickets, it doesn't change the original experience. It just adds to it. You see, a lot of times we treat Jesus as an add-on. All right, I believe in Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. I'm still going to live the exact same life, but now I have this little added-on benefit of Jesus. That's not the gospel. Jesus is not an add-on. What he is is a complete reprogramming of our operating system. So if you think about Apple, Apple as a business model, they have mastered the art of incremental improvements. 
And what I mean by that is every single year, Apple releases new products, new iPhone, new Apple Watch, new iPad, new iMac, you know, everything. Every year, they release new products. And the new one is just incrementally better than the last one. Right? And they just they make these little incremental improvements. They do the same thing with their operating systems. Except every once in a while, they make such a drastic upgrade to their operating system that all other software designers, anybody that provides software or apps or programs in the app store, have to rewrite their apps to fit the new operating system. And so when Apple's got one of these large changes that come out, you'll get notices from different companies that you have software with saying, don't upgrade to the new operating system yet until we give you the green light that we have updated our software. Otherwise, your software will not work properly. So when there is a completely new operating system that is installed, all of the apps have to be reprogrammed. And that is a better picture of the gospel, that when we come to Jesus and we're going to follow him continuously, it's like a complete reprogramming of our operating system. And that means that every app in our life has to be reprogrammed to work with it. So that means I got to reprogram my living situation. I got to reprogram my behaviors. I got to reprogram my thought life. I got to reprogram how I treat people. I got to reprogram my time and how I spend my time. I got to reprogram my priorities. I got to reprogram everything. That's the gospel. It's not an add-on. It's a complete reprogramming. It's daily carrying our cross and continuously following him. Three conditions of discipleship. Number three, forsake everything for Jesus. Right? What did he say for verse 33? If you're not willing to give up all of your own possessions... You cannot be my disciple. Forsake everything for Jesus. Now, here's the important thing. Jesus may not demand you to give up everything, but he does expect you to be willing to when necessary. All right? He may not demand you to give up everything, but he expects you to be willing to, right? We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. God did not expect Abraham to kill Isaac on the altar. He just wanted to know that he'd be willing to, right? When Jesus was interacting with a rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler said, I followed all the commandments, Jesus. What else do I need to have the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And it says the guy walked away. And Jesus didn't chase him down and be like, wait, 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 just kidding, just kidding, come back. No, he just let him leave. There has to be a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to give up what we have for the sake of the kingdom. He's not going to ask us to necessarily give up everything, but he wants to know that we're willing to so that when the time comes and he does ask us, he knows the answer will be yes. It's this idea of what we could call holy indifference or holy detachment. Right? It's this idea that, you know what, I enjoy what I have. The Bible says we should enjoy what we have. Right? If he gives us good things, good relationships, we should enjoy what we have. But we should also have a holy indifference when it comes to giving it up. Now, let's be reasonable here. God will never ask you to give up anything that violates his character or his scripture. Right? So, 
Don't be like, well, God told me to abandon my children, so, you know, I'm just being obedient. Well, God would never ask you to do that, right? God told me to leave my spouse so that I could spend more time with him. Well, no, God would never tell you to do that. So we've got to be reasonable here when we understand what is it that he's asking us to sacrifice. It's earthly possessions. It's earthly possessions. Man, he blessed me with a house, and I love my house. But a day might come when he says, sell your house and move to this other country and tell people about me. You've got to be willing to forsake all of your earthly possessions. And so it requires this holy indifference. I'm reading a book right now about Captain James Cook, who obviously is famous for being the first European to discover the Hawaiian Islands. He was actually the first European to discover a lot of places. He was one of the most renowned explorers in in that period of time. But there was an amazing thing that he wrote because uh, as he uh, discovered all of these places, he got to meet all sorts of different people groups and ethnicities, right? The, the Polynesians in, in, in uh, the South Pacific. He experienced the Maoris in New Zealand. He experienced the Aborigines in Australia, all of these. And he actually wrote about the Aborigines in Australia, that there was something different about them. They showed no interest in anything the Europeans had. Right? All of these other people groups were fascinated. Wow, you have iron. We've never seen iron before. You have clothing. We've never seen clothing before. Right? You, and they were fascinated by it, and they wanted it. But when they got to Australia, the Aborigines showed no interest whatsoever. They tried to trade with them. They tried to give them gifts. And the gifts that they gave to the Aborigines, they just dropped them on the beach and walked away. They had this indifference to any possessions. And from a European point of view, what James Cook wrote was amazing. He said, from one perspective, you could think that these people were the most pitiable of all people. He said, but maybe they're the most blessed of all people because of their indifference to possessions. Whew. He wrote that in 1771. They may be the most blessed of all people because of their indifference to possessions. Jesus says, forsake all your earthly possessions to follow me. So I'm going to conclude with this thought. Bad salt is worse than no salt at all. Bad salt is worse than no salt at all. Right, so Jesus concludes this teaching on the three conditions of discipleship, three conditions of pledging absolute allegiance to Jesus by referring to salt. Seems like kind of a weird place to bring salt into the conversation. But he says, listen, salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless or flavorless, what will it be seasoned? With what will it be seasoned? He said it's useless It's useless even for the soil or for the manure pile. So why is bad salt worse than no salt at all? Because bad salt has to be thrown out somewhere. And wherever bad salt is thrown out, it's going to kill whatever you throw it on. If you're at war and you defeat another enemy's city or territory, the most devastating thing you could do to your enemy is to cover their ground in salt because their crops won't grow anymore and the people will starve. 
So if you've got bad salt, you've got to throw it on the ground, but it's going to kill the ground you throw it on. He says it's not even good for the manure pile. Why? Because if you throw salt on the manure pile, or what we would consider today to be a compost pile, it's going to kill everything in that compost pile, and all the benefits of that compost are going to be negated. So bad salt is worse than no salt at all because wherever you throw out the bad salt, it's going to kill everything it lands on. So why was Jesus talking about bad salt in the context of pledging allegiance to Jesus? Maybe he was making an earth-shaking declaration that a divided faith is, worth, is worse than no faith at all. Think about that. A divided faith is worse than no faith at all. And in the context of us being master builders of our families, modeling a divided faith for our children could have longer lasting consequences than giving them no faith at all. You say, well, how could that be? Because listen, if a kid is raised in brokenness and never hears about Jesus and doesn't know anything about Jesus and somebody later on comes and shares the gospel with that child that this is the gospel of Jesus, they receive that gospel and their life is transformed by it and they pledge allegiance to Jesus. But a child that's raised in a home that is divided, a home that claims to be Christians but loves the world just as much as they love Jesus... And then somebody comes along and shares the gospel with that child. That child's going to say, I'm already a Christian. And they're going to continue to carry on the same divided faith. A divided faith in our household can actually kill the faith of our children. Just like bad salt thrown on the ground is going to kill the ground. So Jesus declares bad salt is worse than no salt at all. So what do we do? We pledge our allegiance to Jesus. We understand that grace and faith refer to allegiance. And that allegiance means that we love Jesus so much more than anyone or anything else in this world that we give him complete and absolute priority. And so we're willing to sacrifice all for his sake. And we're willing to live the way he told us to live. We're going to follow him and live according to his will. And we're going to shape and reprogram every app in our life to fit within the life that Jesus has called us to. And there is going to be an undivided faith within us. An undivided faith within us. Someone reached out to me week before last, and I'm not going to say who it was, but it just meant the world to me that, that this person reached out to me. And they said, hey, my son's got an opportunity, but the opportunity is going to be on Sunday mornings. And this person said, I, you know, I, I, I was wondering, like, should we take the opportunity and we can still watch church on video later? And, and, and I, I would just like some guidance. And so I called this individual, and the guidance I gave them was this. I said, listen, this could very well be the most important moment in your son's life where you make it clear once and for all that Jesus is the priority and his church is the priority and that nothing else will come in the way of that. And even if your son is mad at you because you took this opportunity away, what you have instilled in your son 
has so much more eternal importance because you're showing that your family is going to pledge allegiance to Jesus above all else. This is the key to being wise master builders of our families is that we would teach our children and our grandchildren that we're going to pledge allegiance to Jesus and his church and we're going to make that a priority above everything else in our lives. And we're not going to have a divided faith in our home. Amen? Lord, we just thank you for the family that you have called us into, for our church family as a whole, but also for the individual families and households that are represented. Jesus, you weren't looking for a crowd. You weren't looking to be an add-on. You were looking for true disciples, good salts that would salt the earth and give the seasoning and the preservation and the goodness that you wanted to bring to the earth. So thank you, Lord, for calling us to a high standard, even though it challenges us, causes us to have to make sacrifices, cuts us to the core. Lord, we receive your word today, and we receive this high calling today of being wise master builders of our families. Help us to make the hard choices that are going to impact the, our kids and the next generation and our grandkids, Lord. Let our homes be marked by an undivided faith as we pledge allegiance fully and completely to you, Jesus. And we don't allow anything, anything in our time, our schedule, our attitudes, our devotion, our loves, our philosophies, our worldviews, our beliefs, our convictions. We don't allow anything to supersede our devotion to you and what you have called to be most important in our lives. Thank you for this mighty divine generation that we are raising up, Lord, that we are building upon the foundation of Christ Jesus, but we are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. We are building a divine generation with a mighty calling to shake this world. We thank you for that, Lord. God, by your grace, give us the insight and the strength that we need to make the hard choices. We open ourselves up today to be reprogrammed, Lord, to be reprogrammed that our lives would fit within the model you set for us, Lord. We thank you for that, Jesus. We give you all the praise in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.